This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm with Maureen Stanton, and she is the author of the book Killer Stuff and Tons of Money. And I got to tell you, I 100% recommend for anyone that wants to know what it's really like in this business to read this book. It is a page turner. Uh, I started reading it, and I couldn't put it down. Uh, and it explains exactly the way it is out there. And I love the book. Maureen, how you doing? Pretty good. Thanks, Martin. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. A couple of things I want to talk about. First off the bat, why don't you give an overall synopsis in your own words about the book for the listener out there? Okay. Well, I, I really ventured into this world as a know-nothing, if you will. Um, I really just liked old things. Uh, I had an opportunity to follow around a, a really a self-taught mid-level antiques dealer who does the shows outside. He's an itinerant dealer. And once I got hooked into the subculture, I saw it was a whole world that was fascinating and interesting and funny and challenging. And so I followed him around um, periodically over about eight years, and I really just brought the reader with me. So it's really a tour of this whole subculture, really from the perspective of the dealer, so the other side of the table. Um, and I, I don't think that's really been told, the dealer's story, right. all that much. Right. You know, it's funny. When I first... I met you a few years ago, and I saw your book, and you were kind enough to give me one. And I said, let's do a podcast sometime, and I put it put it on my uh, table, having no idea, just saying, oh, another person writing about how they can make a lot of money in the antiques. That's what I thought, and I apologize for that. And then I got into the first couple of pages, and I was like, oh, my God, I wish I started reading this you know, uh, a <laughs> year and a half ago when I met you. I'm sorry. It's been so long. Oh, no. Yeah. The dealer that you followed in this book that you call Avery, not his real name, remained anonymous for a reason so he could be honest about all his ventures without any repercussions of any kind. And I think that was a really smart idea. Now, you said that you have gotten a little bit of flack about that. Well, from the journalism perspective, there was uh, a review, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, and they really did not like that I used a source that remained anonymous for an entire book. Um, We see that all the time in journalism, in articles in The New Yorker. They have anonymous sources from inside the government, say. And so it just was a little bit unacceptable, but I found that there's really nobody else that, that bothers. Nobody in the antiques world is bothered by that. I think we understand and the reasons why. Exactly. And I, one of the things I didn't want to have to happen since Kurt Avery was so generous to let me really inside his world is to change his world in a way that wouldn't have been good. If I put his real name in there and he had a lot of people coming up to him while he's trying to do a show um, or, you know, that really would have affected his business. Sure. I didn't want to affect his business. I wanted him and he wanted his life to just go on the way it was going. Um, he didn't want to be a star, but he also didn't want to be somebody that was in the limelight or had to deal with a lot of, you know, I mean, I've had readers writing me, and I don't mind that, but if they had all directed emails and comments and letters to him, it's very distracting and time-consuming for him, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, this book is full of some amazing stories, and I have to tell you, you know, just to put a little bit of criticism in it, I do believe that some of the quotes he was saying that he should get for something were pretty inflated. Now, but I do also understand that because when I get a really good buy on something and say a yard sale or something like that, uh, I get all excited and I always think that I'm going to get more than I'm going to get. So you kind of tend to do that. So I understood that. But there were some things I do believe that were a little bit inflated, especially in today's market where it's really difficult to figure out what things are worth. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of it is that the, the span of time that I followed him started in about 2003. It actually started in 2000 with an auction, and then I just mm-hmm. didn't do anything for a couple of years. But in 2003, I began to follow him to shows, and I ended. The last show I worked with him was 2010. Um, during that seven-year period, um, in the mid-level of the antiques world, uh, it really suffered. And so some of the some of the th- some of the prices that he was naming at the beginning of my time was when it was actually still really pretty good out there. Absolutely, and that's one thing I didn't realize is that you were with him during the heyday of say 2006 when prices were absolutely out of control. So a lot of that. I recant what I said earlier. A lot of that was happening during that time. And I mean, I think some of the stories might not be contextualized right in the time frame that they happened. Um, mm-hmm. But for example, at the very beginning of the book, we're walking along and we see a two quart, a one quart butter churn. Oh yes. And yeah. he buys it, and he says that's you know worth one hundred and fifty, two hundred. He buys it for forty dollars, something like that. In 2010, we saw the same thing, and it was sitting there for $75 on a table, and nobody wanted it. So in that span mm-hmm. of time, and that's an anecdote at the end of the book, and I'm not sure if people really make that connection, but you can see how things, the value changes in categories and objects, and especially with the recession. Mm-hmm. Now, he had some great stories. I, I want to tell a great story. You know, this book demonstrates so well that knowledge is power in this business, and that was a direct quote from this guy I'm going to tell the story about. I know uh, t- two different people that was involved in this story. And first of all, it was an on-site auction. There was a library of books. There was an antique dealer auctioneer who was at that particular auction. His name was Bobby Weber, and he passed away a number of years ago. Great guy, real character for sure. He bought this whole library for a set amount of money. And then he brought the books to his shop in Hampton, New Hampshire, and had the books laid out in these boxes. Well, this other guy that I know pretty well, he came into the shop. He was looking through the boxes, and he said all of a sudden his heart started pounding out of his chest. (laughs) The boxes were $15 a piece. He walked up. He bought the books. He walked out of the store still shaking. And the bottom line is it sold for just about $2 million, a single book, out of that box. What was the book? Do you know? Uh, It had something to do with Edgar Allan Poe, but I'm not really sure what made it worth that kind of money. Mm -hmm. So I ran into Bobby Weber, and I said, hey, Bobby, how you doing? (laughs) And he said, knowledge is power. He says, I have no problem with it. He said, I'm the one who put the price on it. Mm -hmm. But there is is sort of a stigma out there Mm -hmm. when, let's say, there's uh, American pickers. A lot of people love American pickers. But when they were making too much money, um, so they got a lot of letters, a lot of hate mail, because uh, they were thinking they were ripping people off. So there is a little bit of a stigma. There's a lot of gray areas here. Mostly when you talk about something is priced, someone prices it, it's out on their table, and you don't try to talk them down. That's the key part. And you buy it and you make your money, you make it because you have the knowledge you have. One of the things that people, and I've heard that a lot, and I heard that about American pickers, that they're taking advantage, especially of older people that don't know, things like that. But one of the things is that the knowledge doesn't come easily. People, Mm -hmm. this guy, Kurt Avery, I mean, he started out giving stuff away. He didn't know. He learned the hard way by spending thousands of dollars, making mistakes, being out in the field, hitting the books, self-study. It really took him 15 years. I mean, the learning curve is very steep, and it's costly. Mm 
So yeah. that knowledge is not, you know, it's, it's worth something. And anyone can get it if they do the work. So, you know, we don't blame our stockbrokers because they can pick out a company and make a lot of money mm-hmm. because of the knowledge they have and able to assess something. But for some reason, when it comes to family objects, if an antique dealer can do that, people don't understand what goes into that. And they feel like, well, you should be obligated to inform the person selling that what the thing mm-hmm. is worth. But it's the knowledge is there. And nowadays with the, you know, the Internet, anyone can research something fairly quickly. You can go on WorthPoint. You can look it up. You mm-hmm. can, you know, there's really no reason why someone can't do some homework and find out a little bit more themselves. Of course, there's lots of really tiny details and esoteric knowledge at the higher end that you have to know to make those larger profits. Absolutely. But at the yeah. same time, you know, you can then take your object to an expert and put it in an auction and get what you can for it. So there's really, it really irritates me a little bit that people have that stigma about antique dealers, that they're somehow taking advantage of people. I mean, very few antique dealers are just driving around in luxury cars. It's mm-hmm. not an easy way to make a living. Um, you have to work hard just like anyone yep. else and study and keep up with the trends. And you can't just go over and buy an inventory of something. You have to find it. Then you have to sell it. It's one of the most challenging occupations, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, you can get lucky. Luck is definitely a part of it. And, you know, I know someone that bought a couple of flags didn't know what they were, and he got $400,000 for it. You know, I mean, I know these people, these things do happen, but you never hear about the horror stories of people losing money or um, the dues they have to pay for tuition to get the knowledge. And, exactly uh, right. Their tuition the hard way, the hard knocks. Um, one of the things I thought was kind of funny in the uh, book was that he was reluctant to tell you about the big losses. And I, I'm never reluctant to tell about the big losses because I've, you know, I've taken the shots. And I tell you, there's not one single time out there that anybody will come to you and pay you money when you make a loss on what you buy from them. Mm-hmm. But and they I, always want the money if you make a profit. <laughs> I remember asking a group of dealers standing around out at the Brimfield Flea Market and saying, well, what, what was your biggest gaffe? You know, the, what's your yeah. biggest loss? And they all just looked at each other and just laughed. Yeah. And then slowly they came up with a little story. But I know there was more there because it you know it just goes it's not just one thing it's it happens in the learning curve probably fairly regularly either you don't buy something or you buy it you sell it too low you don't know what it was and it's and it happens all along the learning curve you can never have um all knowledge in all categories Mm -hmm. and there's so many i think carrie rinker says there's like fifteen thousand collecting categories who can have all that knowledge you know so um so yeah, so I think maybe they don't want to revisit those day, those days as much. But it, they were, you know, forthcoming with some stories, and uh, and it was interesting to, to to for them to look back and say, well, I lost a thousand dollars on that because I just didn't know what it was, and then a couple weeks later, or they saw what someone else was selling it for. But I mean, it happens at the highest levels too. Mm-hmm. But you can't know. Now it. you talk quite a bit about Brimfield, and I've been going to Brimfield for years, and boy, you you hit that so accurately on exactly what it's like there. And, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people, I've never done the show myself, but I know a lot of people that are that are there every year. And, you know, I see them with, you know, grass in their hair and, you know, and uh, like sleeping you know, under the stars and the mosquito bites all oh over gosh. them and, you know, all that. It's a really hard way to to make a living. And, and sometimes 
they don't do well. The shows don't yeah. do well. It's really it's a true gypsy life if you're doing these outdoor flea yeah. markets and shows in the summer, and it is hit or miss. If you can have a, you can start out with a good show, and then all of a sudden it's a downpour, and everybody clears out, and you're yeah. there for the next seven hours selling nothing. Or if it's a hundred degrees, no one's going to come out and buy anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're you're just you know subjected to the weather. Uh, it's it's really just a, a very strange way to try and make money. It's just real hit or miss, and there's a little control. Um, I think the Brimfield and sort of sleeping out in the field and in a tent and getting no sleep at all is kind of a young person's game. Mm. And after a while, you see that people, when they have a certain level of knowledge, they kind of start doing the better shows, the indoor shows. Maybe they do an online site to sell. There's a few diehards out there like Kurt Avery still doing the Brimfields and the and the flea markets and the outdoor shows, but it, it's exhausting. I, I couldn't do it. I physically, every time I did it with Kurt Avery, I'd go home and crash. He'd go home and pack for another show the next day or two days later. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how he did it. It just The right. stamina it takes was unbelievable. One of the uh, things you talked about is the circulation of items, and I have a quick funny story that went right along with that. Dennis Waters is a daguerreotype, an image uh, antique dealer in uh, Exeter. So he's, he was at Brimfield. He sold a daguerreotype, and he was chased down by someone there, say, maybe an hour later, and they said, hey, look, I got this daguerreotype, and I'll sell it to you for this amount, and it was his daguerreotype, right? <laughs> so then uh, he sold it for, I think it was 1100 That guy came back at uh, 2000 so someone you know sold it to him. It came back again a third time that day to him for like 3500 the same daguerreotype yeah. he sold for eleven hundred. He so, didn't buy it then, did he? I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But there, there's that one story in the book where uh, Kurt Avery and, an, and another guy, they both were after something on eBay. One of them bought it for eight hundred. Then he sold it to the other one for like ten thousand. Once they figured out what it was, uh, a piece of redware, and then then that other guy bought it back from him when they realized that it was even more valuable. And you know, it, things go back and forth like that. But it's it's really all about the knowledge. And there's that ladder. Um, that ladder of knowledge that you go up where the person who doesn't know very much, they just know it's an old pot, is getting $50. And then the next person knows, oh, it's a piece of redware, and they're getting 200 And then somebody says, well, this is a Vermont glaze or something. The level of knowledge and the more you can apply to it and recognize that thing um, is where how that goes up and up and up, that ladder of value. Um, Which brings an interesting thought, and that is, I think there was a quote somewhere in the book that Avery said, the phrase something like if it loses its story it loses its value i'm not sure if that's exactly the quote but it's something like that and so now as we move forward there are less and less people that are really interested in antiques and the stories start dissipating and the prices start you know if it doesn't have the story it's not going to have the value. And, you know, it's interesting. There was a study I read recently somewhere about why people collect antiques. And one of the big reasons is um, the history and the narratives and the objects. Um, for investment mm-hmm. purposes, was a very small percentage mm-hmm. of people. So people love the old things because of the stories. But that, that knowledge is kind of going by the wayside. And when people are collecting things that are more vintagey and more latter half of the 20th century, 
what's I mean, there's interesting stories there, but these are mass-produced things. They're not very special and rare. They might have a nice aesthetic or a look that people want, um, but I think the stories the story is getting a little bit lost because there isn't this story of a a trencher that was you know 250 years old that really somebody hand carved and it was on this table and it was the thing that they ate out of. Out of. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to those stories add that romance to the objects, and that's kind of what I fell in love with too in this mm-hmm. in this whole world. Um, but yeah, I think we're getting away from that a little bit. And the shows, the lots of TV shows out there now, really emphasize value over uh, financial value over um, kind of the narrative value, uh, the historic value. Mm-hmm. And I think that's skewing things a little bit too. It is uh, the one the one positive thing I can say about that is maybe it sparks curiosity for people to try to understand why it's valuable. Yeah, I do. I think that's true. I mean, I'm not saying they sh- the shows. I mean, there's, I counted over 50 shows yes. on antiques. Flea- I ha- actually keep a running list because it's just amazing to me. Because prior to 2009, there was, I think, just Antiques Roadshow and maybe one other show, mm-hmm. Cash in the Attic. And then Pickers came out, American Pickers. And then from 2009 to 2013, this huge, like a dozen or more shows a year coming out, Flea Market Flip and Market Warriors and just all kinds of shows. Um, now, I've pitched a number of shows. To uh, I, I've been contacted, I think, five times by casting agencies here, you know, because of my podcast. Mm-hmm. So I pitched a couple of shows, and um, they are saying constantly for the last three years that, no, 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 we, we, we can't do any more antique shows or too many antique shows. But they're still coming out. They are still coming out. And, in fact, I was contacted by um, an executive producer at the Discovery Channel. Yeah. In the, mm-hmm. He was in the middle of the book, and he said – you have really created this subculture. Can I talk to Kurt Avery? We want him to do a pilot. And oh, so wow. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll ask him. And I kind of knew what was going to happen. And he was going to say, he was going to say no. Yeah. And he, and he did. He just, and he was contacted another time for another opportunity. And he just does not want to be in that limelight. And there's so many of his friends around him are like, do it, do it. Even his wife is yeah. like, do it. Why don't you do it? But he, in some ways, I can see that he doesn't want to be. He doesn't want his life to change that way. He wants to be able to go. And do what mm-hmm. he does, and not have you know some kind of celebrity status attending him, so we can't you know well, kind of really go and buy something. Yeah. yeah, and he also just is not the kind of guy that really likes to be in front of a camera. You have to be somebody that wants that as well. I think. Now, I, I think didn't we have a connection a while back with um, uh, someone that I gave you a name of, and he actually tried out for a part. Greg Willett, the picker. yeah, Greg Willett, and that was the same guy at the Discovery that um, that we I gave that. I name wondered to. if that was it. Yeah. And I think that sh- they did a pilot, and I think that show is on hold for some reason, and I don't yes, know why. Financial. That's what financial, I heard. Financial. Okay. <laughs> and then they were doing a show. He was going to do a show that it was like American Pickers in Europe. They that's wanted correct. an American picker yeah. who goes over to Europe and other countries and brings stuff back. And that's his forte. So yeah. yeah. So anyway, that didn't really take off yet. But Not yet. Um, but he's he's still in contact with. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Well, maybe it will work out. Yeah. We'll see that on the air some someday soon. I think it's a fascinating idea. Yeah, yeah. it is. One of the things uh, toward the end of your book, you have another quote from Kurt Avery who says that I deal in the better of good, better, and best, and the better is the market that is suffering. And I see that across the board. I see that in real estate as well. So it's in real estate, in all antiques, and art. Right in the middle, where most of us were very happy making a living, is uh, what we have to stay away from. And the company I work with right now, it's like we are looking for the best. And the things we have to turn away makes me cringe because it used to be my bread and butter. 
It's really true, and you just keep – there's article after article. Even the most recent issue of Antiques Digest has articles on this. Um, it's the middle level of objects um, is really suffering, and and those are the mid-level dealers. Um, and and so, I mean, it's – no one knows what to do about it, really, mm-hmm. um, except for maybe be more selective in what you buy. Uh, instead of buying 10 things of the three three or $500 range, just you have to wait and hope that that – $5,000 object comes along, save your money, buy it, and double your profit on that, knowing that it's much more rare, much more special, mm-hmm. much, much more valuable in so many ways. So, um, yeah, the the best in the low end, for some reason, is, is working out well. I, I know a lot of people that are just dealing in um, kind of industrial or, right. um, yeah. you know, mannequins and, I don't know, strange objects that people want that don't necessarily have that antique value. Uh, the antiquarian value, but they're they're making lots of money at Brimfield selling these brushed steel office desks and things That's like that, amazing. and big letters. And I, I don't even I know what I see the letters you know. everywhere in Brimfield, right? And people want yeah. them for their like lofts in New York. I guess I don't I don't really know, yeah. but for decorative purposes. But um, those middle level antiques are really those dealers are struggling, and they still are struggling. And it's been going on for a couple of years now, so yeah. they, they don't know what to do. People are in a quandary at that level. Right? You can't just jump to the higher level. It takes yeah. um, some capital. It takes confidence. It takes knowledge. Connections. It, it takes connections, yeah. to, and it takes a, a level of inner confidence and ability to just change the way of doing things. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard for people. One of my uh, really good friends is Peter Sawyer. Um, he's one of the top New Hampshire dealers, antique dealers, and he's going to be on the show at some point. He finally agreed. He was reluctant, <laughs> but he finally agreed. He deals in the upper end of period furniture, and he tells me, he goes, when I sell this piece, what am I going to replace it with? It's really hard to find that type of uh, material out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, finding that great stuff. I mean, you have to, in some ways, you have to have a lot of faith that if you're not buying anything in three or four months or five months, that something's going to come along. The one guy that's doing this, I think, really well is the guy who's buying the mistakes on eBay. He knows that if he doesn't buy anything in three months, that there's going to be something. But it's a kind of – it's scary for Kurt Avery because he's got kids and he needs money coming in. So it's very hard to change his his, uh, his modus operandi to from doing shows and buying this middle-level stuff, just a little waiting and not having any money coming in and waiting for that good, good wow. thing. Sure. You know, it's – because there's no guarantee it's going to come. You know, you have to have a great level of faith, I think. And maybe – you know, a spouse that has a really good job. Mm-hmm. You don't need that money coming in on a weekly basis. You know, there's the old saying that I've heard dealers say for years, if I'm not buying, I'm not making money. But I understand totally what you're saying because you can be buying and still be not making money if you're buying the wrong stuff. Right, and you have a lot of inventory in your garage or, in your, yeah. your, you know, and you're not monetizing <laughs> that inventory exactly. Yeah. You know, you can buy 20 things at an auction and take them to a show, and then if you sell one, you've got 19 things there. What are you doing with those? And they end up getting yeah. stuffed aside while you're looking for that new, fresh thing that's actually going to sell. Yeah. So there, there is a different there, – there has to be a change, I think, in the way – People that have some knowledge um, do their business because the mid-level shows are – even the shows are suffering. They, even the show promoters mm-hmm. are not getting the number of dealers that these, these sort of mid-level and, and good antique shows. Not the top shows like the Armory or the Philadelphia show, right. but yeah. the mid-level ones like um, some of uh, some of the shows are in Massachusetts. I like the way Kurt Avery, quote-unquote, <laughs> started because that's exactly the way I started. I started digging bottles uh, about age nine or so. And was fascinated by the history of it. And then, like he said, and I didn't even realize that all my friends were digging bottles with me. Everyone I knew was digging bottles. 
And that was a real craze Mm -hmm. back in the, you know, I think that he's probably about the same age as I am. I'm not sure. I feel like he is. I also had a conversation with Lee Kino, who you bring up uh, many times in the book. And that's exactly how he started. He started mm-hmm. digging bottles. I don't know if you knew that or not. Well, they, I read the Kino's memoir. They sort of together, they wrote a memoir, yeah. which was really fascinating because it started out with some of their childhood adventures um, and family history. And then it went to some of the great stories they have at Sotheby's, mm-hmm. making, you know, setting world records and things like that. So it, they had this, some wonderful artifacts, like a piece out of a page out of their journal when they were, I think, 12. We are going to be antique dealers in their little kid handwriting. Mm-hmm. So they did start out going out and finding old junk, digging junk and finding old barns and uh, that adventure of looking for artifacts. And uh, so many of the dealers that I talked to had that same start. Mm-hmm. Um, look at this. Indians must have used this. And, they, you know, these yeah. young kids having these adventures in the woods, digging stuff up and thinking it's worth a million dollars and some kind of treasure. And uh, oftentimes they didn't set out to be antique dealers like the Kinos did, but something happened in their life and they ended up doing it as a hobby, and then it became the way they did their living. Um, and that, that all started with that German childhood of uh, the adventure of bottle digging. Yeah. Yeah. It really spawned a lot of antique dealers. <laughs> it really is. And I remember I had – my sisters and I had a, um, a yard sale. We didn't, we didn't even know what to call it. I, what we did is we put a sign out in front of our garage that was – we had a house on a hill and then a garage down by the street. We put a sign down there, and then we put stuff out for 25 cents and 50 cents <laughs> and a dollar. And by the time we got done in a couple of days, we made $40, and that was yeah, just... a huge amount of money. And I never forget, uh, For we're talking, I hate to say how old I am, but we're talking in the uh, late 60s. And my father came home, and you know we told him uh, we made that money, and he said, are you kidding? He couldn't believe that we made $40 in that weekend. <laughs> and so my father started putting around in the antiques but what he did was he started selling things that were kicking around this old house that we bought Mm -hmm. and i think you know it all sort of just kind of grew in together with my father's interest in the antiques yeah and i think i've told this story before but it's kind of interesting my father stumbled into the auction business because the auctioneer showed up drunk at a benefit auctioneer (laughs) and they put him up there to auction and people brought him things to sell and sometimes that just happens that way people have those opportunities by accident yeah, and I think there's a lot of dealers that got into this by accident. Sometimes they're collectors who decided, well, for me to get my stuff for my collection, I'll go to an auction and buy it, and then they get a, a box lot, and they mm-hmm. end up with the other stuff. So then they set up at a flea market. Yep. After that accumulates, and the next thing you know, they're dealing. You know, they're dealing in mm-hmm. old stuff, but it started mm-hmm. as a way to feed their habit, you know, their collecting habit for a certain category. So one of the things I found is that very few people, unlike the Kinos, set out to become antique dealers. They mm-hmm. just fall into it through opportunity, through uh, chance, through through something developing as a hobby into something more. They started making money, maybe, and they decided, wow, I can make a living at this. Um, not too many people really set out to study art and art history and actually end up doing this. I yeah. think maybe that's happening a little bit more now um, with material culture being taught at the university level. That's true. Um, mm-hmm. But back in Kurt Avery's day, which was in the 60s, we grew up in the 60s and early 70s as a as a boy, uh, it was the bottle digging and the treasure hunting. And yeah. it's nice to see that that might be coming back with this young picker that you yes. had on there, Connor. I'm glad you listened to him, Connor. It was wonderful. And yeah. also... Um, American Pickers has a kid picker. I think they're coming out with a book, a kid picker, yeah. and a show. And in my own travels, when I'm you know, at flea markets and things signing books, I've had kids come up to me, 15-year-old kids, and they're into this. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe there's going to be a, a new generation that finds this fun and interesting. Um, I mean, they're inundated with electronics and mass-produced yeah. stuff. And, yeah. you know, this antique stuff and the old stuff is really unusual and different. Mm-hmm. And maybe they'll see that. One of the things that I talk about probably too much, but I don't get a lot of bad email about it. Um, but I think it's one of the number one things that stops a lot of people in their tracks is fakes and reproductions. Fakes and reproductions is a real problem. It really is. And one of the things that I was shocked at is that even the really even the stuff that's coming, the reproductions coming up from China, which to me anyone can spot, you know, is that but the people that are quite sophisticated don't know that. For example, I had a cousin who read my book and and literally thought that the stuff she was buying at the Christmas tree shops, that sort of aged looking stuff, she thought it was antiques. You know, and when I, I had to say this name, the person, but a correspondent from NPR when I was on NPR when the book first came out, and we went to a flea market in Washington D.C. and she could not spot um, a fake piece of wrought iron from a real one. So I pointed it out to her. It didn't make it on the air, but you know that sort of uniform mm-hmm. rust that you see yeah. from somebody leaving the thing out in the rain. Yeah. Um, she couldn't tell the difference, and it's a really simple thing. Um, but these fake reproductions, either people don't care and they just want the look. Or they don't know and they think they're buying an antique, but they're coming in by the boatload. I hate to say, but a lot of people don't care. Right. You right. Know, they, just... And they just want the look. I want to show you, I know this is not a visual podcast, but I'm going to show you this picture. See this? Mm-hmm. This is a weather vane, the trotter and jockey. And you can look at it, right? It's well, beautiful. <laughs> how about I get sent two of those within a few days, a few pictures from different parts of the country. And oh. you know what that means? Yeah, yeah. That means China. Oh no. Probably. Yeah, it's um so they're they're pretty good, but um I'm I already told both people, you know, here's a picture of the other one. And this could only mean one thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to start seeing more of them. And that happens from what I can tell, it really did start when trade with China in the 80s really opened up. And there's a story in the book where Two um, two women who were buyers for Southern Living Catalog magazine. Well, it's a magazine, a catalog arm of the magazine, and they literally bought these great antiques from Kurt Avery. And they took them. And I said to him, "Are you? Go- what are you going to do with them? You're going to we're going to take them over to China, mm-hmm. have someone replicate it, and and sell them for thirty five bucks, you know, instead of three hundred. It's a tea set or something in their catalog. And sure enough, that's exactly what they did. And yep. I even said to Kurt Avery, "Don't you feel bad? You're contributing to the demise of the, your very that's business." Right. He's like, yeah. "I got to feed my family. I got to sell these things. Yeah. They're just going to buy it from someone else down the lane." And it's true. And uh, it's a little heartbreaking to to see that. Yeah. Stuff and there's a there's a company when I did some research on the reproductions there's a company that if you click on the website every category they have probably seventy five categories of antiques majolica have been reproduced and they're you can buy them as reproductions they're literally taking the exact antiques and having them reproduced in China not not just something similar but the exact look of it so I'm not surprised it's reaching the higher end like that weather vane which would be a really rare thing if it was real yeah that's right well. A couple of stories I have about that real quickly is um, a friend of mine is a folk art dealer, and he was recently contacted by a person that had bought something, and he said, I'm sorry, what did you pay for it? And the guy paid several thousand dollars for it, and he said, how many do you want? You know, (laughs) because this is definitely, again, from China. Another thing is a dealer that does deal a lot in reproductions in, in Kennebunk, Maine, you see, you go by his antique shop, quote unquote, 
and uh, there's a ton of weather vanes outside, copper weather vanes that were brand new. But he also took a very rare box to China to have them reproduce it. And what happens is uh, they will reproduce the first example to give to you, and it's absolutely perfect, and then they'll make other ones that aren't so good Mm -hmm, (laughs) um, to -hmm. copy it. So he took home, you know, his box, and after after he left and thought how good it was, and then when he got home, he's saying, "I wonder if I have the real box or if I have the fake box." Right, right. You so know, he but, shot himself in the foot a little bit. <laughs> One other quick story I'm going to tell about reproductions, which is totally amazing. When it, when I was in California, there came in this beautiful pair of uh, partial gilt candelabra figural. French, and I'm looking at them, and they were just like too good to be true. The casting was magnificent, so I'm thinking they have to be real. So I called the consigner, and he says, "No, no, I had those made in in China." And I said, "Are you kidding with this beautiful gilt and the casting?" And he says, "No." He goes, "I know the right place to go to." So I said, "Well, I'm going to catalog these as the style of, and that they're not old." I says, "I can't, you know." hurt the reputation of the company and he says okay okay well a major dealer and anyone that's in the auction business will know who this dealer (laughs) is in new york city called me and i told him right off the bat i said these are casts they're new and he goes you know what these are good enough i'm still going to buy them wow so even the top end dealer is buying right if the crafting is there if the craftsmanship and art artistry well i mean it's that that's interesting but i mean for the most part it goes back to what we're talking about the very beginning which is knowledge is power um because if you are buying something and it is turns out to be a reproduction the only way you can get your value back on that is to resell it again as real and so you're deceiving somebody if you once you tell somebody it's a reproduction the value of it generally goes down so either you take the loss or you pass the loss on which is neither one is good um, mm-hmm. And it's just it's just auto, a matter of knowledge, and and it's it's really confounding, I think, uh, the antiques world. And I, I do think that the past whatever twenty five thirty years has really been part of what has made it difficult to be in the business because um, mm-hmm. sometimes you can't tell. Sometimes the reproductions are really done well. Sometimes a reproduction is done poorly, but someone then makes it look they age it themselves. Right. You know, um, there's not a lot of at least at the lower and mid end. There's not a lot of policing of this mm-hmm. um, this market and that's I think what people what appeals to people about it that it's this kind of free free market and it's you know you don't have the government regulating there are no you know tags on it to tell you I mean you're on your own and it's kind of um, adventurous and fun because of that but at the same time you know you have to be a little bit careful one of the things I found in my book is the, the comments that I got from readers most people are not saying well I'm nervous about buying antiques now I had one comment of that out of hundreds and most of them are saying I really Really want to get out there, and I understand that I'm going to have to start making mistakes, but I want to get out there. So I was a little heartened because I was actually a little afraid to write about the reproductions. I mean, there had to be an authentic story, mm-hmm. but I felt I was going to get some feedback from dealers saying, "Why did you have to write about reproductions and fakes?" Because that's the the dark side of uh, of this trade. Mm-hmm. It is, and I bring it up a lot because I loathe them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they really affect all parts of the business. I can't think of one single thing that's good about fakes and reproductions myself. Now, I, I do want to say that a beautiful, uh, handcrafted, bench-made piece of furniture in the style of, um, not made to deceive, I think that is the total uh, phrase that changes everything when it's made to deceive. Um, 
the beautiful pieces that are handmade in the style of are, are just fine and wonderful as long as they're not made to deceive. Mm-hmm. And there's still, you know, Windsor chairs being made yep. to perfection in place up beautiful. in Maine and yep. other places. Mm-hmm. It's just when someone takes one of those and dips it in the sea and drags it around the driveway <laughs> and calls it 300 years old, yeah. you know, um, yeah. is when that's a problem. And uh, one of the things you mentioned in the book that uh, Kurt Avery says is about, you know, the scrapes on the bottom of a glass, if they're all the same. I've definitely seen that, and I've looked for that a lot myself. Uh, because the wear on the bottom of an early piece of glass will oftentimes be scratched for the most part. Um, and if they're all in one direction, that means they dragged it in the driveway most likely <laughs> or something like that. And the old saying, if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. And a lot of times that's what you have to have in mind when you're mm-hmm. buying something that a dealer is selling and the price is just too good. Mm-hmm. I had someone in Texas recently send me a picture she was all excited about this little miniature uh mannequin dress stand on on a counter and she says i can't can i you know it's four hundred dollars can i buy it and and it says it's antique and it's in this place in texas and i said no 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 no, no. those are everywhere right now you know it's not antique so she went in and um i followed up with her she went into the store and she said you know this thing is an antique and the dealer just said well i didn't know you know i bought it from you know, a person in a house, you know, yeah. so they play, I don't know if it's playing dumb or it could be a true story. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a deception that's out there. And then there's what Kurt Avery called honest ignorance. Mm-hmm. And that is that there's certainly dealers that really believe themselves. They have the authentic thing. They mm-hmm. just, their knowledge level is on that sort of learning curve and they don't quite know. And this happened one time at Brimfield when the, we passed by, um, I think it was a pie cabinet um, that somebody had named Shaker. And uh, mm-hmm. we walked away, and Kurt Avery said to me, that's not Shaker. You know, you yeah. can tell all the fake paint, blah, blah, blah. But the dealer really didn't know that. You yeah. know, he, he really thought it was. And it wasn't yeah. trying to deceive. It was just simply that honest ignorance that he that yeah. called it. Now, I, I was at Brimfield the last uh, a few weeks ago in September, and I walked by and I saw this beautiful translucent jade bowl. And I asked the woman... I said, first of all, is that Jade? And she said, sure, yes, it's Jade. And uh, I said, may I see it? And then as soon as she handed it to me, it was warm to the touch. And I realized right away it was resin. Mm, Not even, mm -hmm. there's other stones that look like Jade, but this was actually resin. So I said, you know this isn't Jade, right? She goes, no, 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 I I bought it for Jade. So I really think that a lot of times dealers, if they don't know their subject, they can definitely buy something Mm -hmm. wrong. Yeah, and that's part of the learning curve. And if you... If you're dealing with a dealer who's on the upswing going up on that learning curve, they, they may be making mistakes and, and innocently passing that off. Um, so, I mean, one of the things for, for people who want to collect and buy antiques is to, you know, to know the reputation of the dealer, to, to you know, trust if you have a trusted friend that, that knows good dealers, mm-hmm. to ask around. People do That's know. Right. If they're members of a dealer's association, if they show at the same show, so you can go back to them and say, look, this, you know, I don't think this is what you what what you said it was. If a dealer like Kurt Avery, for example, guarantees if he says something is what it is, he guarantees he'll take money back if you don't mm-hmm. if you prove later. If it's something if he doesn't know what it is, he'll say, look, that could be this, but I don't know, and it's priced that way. It's priced low because I don't mm-hmm. really know. Take a chance with it. You know, you're on your yeah. own. But if he says this is a certain you know certain century six board blanket chest from this, then he knows, and he's he's going to put his name and his reputation on it yeah. because the reputation of a dealer is one of the most valuable yes. things. 
Absolutely. you have to protect that. And if you're caught selling something, whether ignorantly or, or purposefully, that isn't what it is, no one's going to come near you who has any knowledge. It's to, a very to buy. small world in this business. A- absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I found, just if I could just say about the reproductions, is I recently did an article, I guess it was last May, for the Boston Globe magazine. And mm-hmm. with a colleague, we did, um, they wanted us to look at the best places to go antique shopping within 30 miles of Boston. So we came up with a list of, I think it was like 33 places, but we vetted many more places. And one of the things I found is many antique dealers and shops um, putting mixing the reproductions with the antiques. Mm. To me, that's the death knell of a shop because I don't want to have to sort that out. I think mm-hmm. people who, don't, who know less about antiques don't know. And it just brings down the, the antique. So we really avoided. We looked for bigger in-group shops just because it was a destination-type mm-hmm. uh, article. And we really tried to exclude those ones that had too many reproductions. But it was very hard to find shops that didn't have any uh, you know, in-group shops. Yeah. You know, So it is sad. I mean, there's a place in Maine that I've seen a tag on a table saying, reproduction, please remove. So somebody, even though there's 75 dealer booths in there, somebody's watching out for the quality of that and sort of yeah. curating you know, the dealers. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time, but I have one last question for you. I want you to tell your favorite story in the book. I got you thinking, didn't I? I, I think one of my favorite stories, I mean, it's really hard because there's lots of little anecdotes in the book. Um, but my favorite story is, I think, one of the, the one that sort of ends the book, and that is the, um, the yarn winder. Uh, oh, the shaker one. Yeah, the shaker yarn winder, because it really kind of it embodies a lot of the things that happen in the antiques trade. And the first thing is that somebody pulled this thing out of a dump, and then they mm-hmm. sold it to a dealer for 40 50 bucks, And mm-hmm. then the dealer sold it. Then it sat at a show, and many knowledgeable dealers passed it by for a day, and you know it was on sale for ninety bucks. And then mm-hmm. Kurt Avery took it, thought he could get a couple hundred dollars from it, didn't know it was Shaker, uh, took it home, looked at it in, in good light, said to himself, "Oh my gosh, this might be Shaker." It was just the quality of the the quality, of the the workmanship, and the certain mm-hmm. dovetailing type things they did on the inside of it, where you, no one would ever see it. So why would you do it so carefully? Like the Shakers did that. Um, and took it to somebody who knows Shaker and discovered it was this thing that went to auction. I think it sold for like 7000 So this is something that was on its way to the dump and could mm-hmm. be trashed and lost forever. Now it's in the hands of probably collector, you know, and, and preserved. And on, along the way, a couple people made some money. But it's that thing where knowledge meets luck, mm-hmm. you know, which happens so mm-hmm. often in the antiques trade is that you, you don't always recognize something, but you have a gut instinct. It looks good for a particular reason. I think Kurt Avery said the paint was good. Um, and then later realized it was Shaker, and that's that's kind of the excitement of it too. It's mm. like, what is this? You know, what is? And then learning about what that really meant to the Shakers in terms of counting out the yarn um, in the skeins of yarn, and you, you start researching the object, and you get this whole story of Shaker life that's fascinating and embodied yes. in that object. So that's my favorite story because there's so yeah. many layers to it. Yeah, yeah, that's a real good one. So Maureen, how would someone find your book? Well, the book, some bookstores may have it still, but um, you can find it on any online bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, even, you know, indie books. Um, Is it Kindle? It's on Kindle. It's ebook. It's out in paperback. I'm trying to get mm-hmm. Penguin to do an audio book because I keep thinking of all these dealers on the road in their trucks, but mm-hmm. they haven't done it yet. Uh, but it's in paperback, and it's pretty inexpensive, and uh, there's still plenty of copies out there for people that want them. Excellent. So thank you so much. Thank you.
This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.